Lord Jesus, um, uh, speak to us. Uh, take my words and uh, uh, may your spirit make them your words. And may you conform our, all of our thoughts to your thoughts. May you conform our desires to your desires. And then may you use us in the world to make this world a better place. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. So here's the problem at Corinth. Uh, this, uh, this church thought they were super spiritual and uh, had it all together um, because the, the city of Corinth thought it was a super city. It was rich and powerful and successful and fast-growing and entrepreneurial and individualistic and uh, much better than all the country bumpkins. And that attitude of the Corinthian city had filtered into the church. So they thought they were better than most other Christians uh, uh, now, that sort of thinking could never happen in Sydney, um, where we realize that there's Sydney and then there's the rest of Australia, you know, really actually, you know, west of Victoria Road, really, if you're honest, but, you know, that's another, you know, depends where. So we, we're all prone to this in Sydney, like Corinth, we tend to think there's Sydney, you know, and we are the capital of Australia economically, culturally, scenically, tourist-wise, intellectually, uh, musically, artistically, spiritually, um, and, uh, and that attitude of sort of independence and arrogance and cockiness and having it all together sometimes, occasionally, has been known to filter into even churches in Sydney where we think we've got it all together. Theologically, we know the truth. Sydney Anglicans, perhaps, or you know, some of our large Pentecostal churches. We have the best music in the world and we export our brand globally and we figured it all out and we don't need anyone else. And it dribbles into the church sometimes. This is a big problem in the church in Corinth. And sometimes it can be a big problem for us. And, and what that meant in Corinth was that uh, Paul says, <laughs> he's very gentle. He says, listen, brothers and sisters, uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to talk to you as super spiritual people because they thought they were super spiritual, just like Corinth was a super city. He says, I'd love to talk to you as uh, people who live by the Spirit, um, but I can't talk to you like that because... Um, because guess what? You are actually people who are still worldly. Now, by worldly, what he means there is driven, really driven by the desires that are common to all human people. Money, sex, status, power. He says these are the things that are really, you're not that different to your, your pagan Corinthian friends. And you are mere infants. Now, what does that mean? That's, he says you're basically, hey guys, you're childish. You're childish Christians. And the evidence of your of the fact you're living just like the pagans is just like the Corinthian city around you. You're given over to jealousy and quarreling. You're competitive. You're, you're aligning in various factions as you rely on these factions to try and get ahead. And you think you're all super spiritual. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Christ. But you're really just, you're divided. You're childish. Now, um, look. It's great that's not our situation. Uh, none of us are childish like that, and our church isn't. But, you know, um, I have a friend who's like that, and, and I know other churches who are. So for the, the, the sake of this morning, we're going to think about other churches, um, which is always a lot easier than thinking about ourselves, I find. Um, and I'm not ever talking about myself. I'm always talking about friends of mine. Uh, just so you know, we clarify that. But this is a challenge for us, right? And he says, you're childish and you're divided. Uh, here's what uh, childishness does, is childishness, um, you know what, here's what, one of the essences of being a kid in terms of interrelationships is kids can go from being best friends with someone to being kind of worst enemies in a flash, can't they? 
And then they, they can flip it all around and suddenly you go, you know, but hang on, you were like, they were fighting yesterday, but now you're in the in group and now you're in the out group. And they, because here's what kids do. Developmentally, they interpret everything through the lens of how the other person's behavior makes them feel. So X, someone, you know, Fred says this to me and that makes me feel really bad. So therefore I think X must be bad and X must have meant for me to feel bad. So children instinctively see the world from, a, from their own point of view, uh, highly, and, and what they do is they then infer, they go up a, what people call the ladder of inference, they go, your comment made me feel bad, therefore you must have wanted to make me feel bad, therefore you're a bad person, you wanted to hurt me, I don't want anything more to do with you. Now that's a childish way of thinking, it breeds all kinds of divisions and disunity, that's what we tend to do as well, even as adults. It's very hard to put yourself in the other person's shoes and realize, guess what, uh, that you may feel something because someone has said something doesn't mean they were trying to make you feel that. They weren't even thinking of you, chances are, you're not that important to them, because we're all just thinking about ourselves. <laughs> so we all interpret other people's behavior in terms of how it makes us feel. And then we infer motives and we get suspicious of people. We distance ourselves from people. And we, the path of maturity is to put ourselves in the shoes of the other and understand where they're coming from and, and decenter ourselves and our own emotional experience and own our own feelings. So uh, that's, that's how immaturity works out. Childishness can work out. And then a very primitive response is if, if I'm vulnerable and threatened and this is how I'm being made to feel, I'm going to grab onto people who will rescue me, who will give me, you know, I want to be in the in-group. I want to be with people who make me feel good and help me get ahead. Okay, so that was Corinth, and, and there are some other churches in Sydney who do that. We don't, thankfully. Um, what's the answer to that? Because, look, I'm assuming um, we need to help our brothers and sisters in other churches to grow up and mature. Uh, so, so what's the answer? And really, look, what's the answer to us? How do we, as a, as a church, as we grow, how do we make sure we're, we're not childish uh, so here's the answer, Paul says. You've got to understand the nature of the church. You've got to really understand what this thing is that we're part of. And here's what Paul says you've got to understand. There are three things that he's going to talk about in this text. He's going to say, first thing you've got to understand is that uh, as a church, uh, we belong to God. And the second thing is, um, as, a ch- as a church, oops, that's not what I wanted. We're um, uh, interdependent. And thirdly, what you need to understand as a church is we're actually accountable. And when you understand those three things, it starts to set us up to be the kind of people God wants us to be. We belong to God, we're interdependent, and we're accountable. So how does this, how does this look? Um, how, how's this going to help us this morning? Uh, well, the first thing is, look, we belong to God. Uh, verse 9, well, really, verse 5 and 6. Oh, and by the way, a moment of history. Uh, when this church, the first service that started this church, Bishop Barker preached on uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 6. This was the opening text setting up this church way back when. Isn't that cool? Um, our in-house historian, uh, Gilbert, told us that, told me that this morning. So here's what Paul says. Um, uh, we actually belong to God. Uh, verse 9, because, look at this, we are co-workers in God's service and you are God's field and God's building. We belong to God. So the little, I don't know if you can see this here, uh, this little apostrophe here, here and here, apostrophe S, grammatically this is um, 
uh, a possessive genitive. So the apostrophe says, the, the service, the field, and the building belong to God. So the church belongs to God. Here's a text for you to look up and read in your uh, devotions or in your small groups. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 actually says that God's people are his treasured possession. It says a bunch of other great things about God's people. But Paul is working off this to say, listen, um, the God as the king, a, a king in, in the ancient world as today, can own a whole bunch of stuff by virtue of being in their role as king. So I, you know, the, maybe the queen, Queen Elizabeth, owns everything that is associated with her in her role, all the palaces and all the rest of it. But when she, when she retires from being queen, most of that stuff goes, and she's just left with her own personal belongings, her treasured possessions. And so Exodus says, um, God owns the whole world. He's the king of the whole world. But guess what? Within this whole world that he owns by virtue of being king, his people are the things that are his own treasured personal possessions, things that matter to him personally, that he would take with him when he ceased to be king of the whole world, not that he ever will. But this is what Paul is referring to. We belong to this God as his treasured personal possessions. Now, I think about it for a moment. That makes a big difference in terms of how we treat the church, doesn't it? Like we can't just do with the church whatever we want, whether you're a leader or a participant, because uh, we belong to God. And really the question is this, you know, um, think about the difference between being a tenant and uh, being, uh, actually I'm not really a landlord, it's more being a tenant versus being the owner of a property. Now some of us still have the joy of living in properties that other people own. When you're a tenant, it changes how you relate to that property. You, you can't just do whatever you like, can you? You're renting it and you go, well, I think I'd like to move a wall. I'll just move the wall. I might just knock in some nails here. I might just paint it. I might just add on a bathroom. You can't do that. You're only in it for a while and you don't own it. You're just there to look after it. When you're the owner, of course, you can do whatever you like. Oh, I might add on a building. I might add on a bathroom or a bedroom. Maybe you should talk to council. Maybe you should get elected to council so then you can do whatever you like, you know? Um, If you own it, you can change it, you can muck around with it, it's yours. You're the only one who's responsible for it. Sometimes sometimes we can treat the church like that. We think it's ours. We can do whatever we like with it. We say, no, no, it's not. It's not. The church doesn't belong to a denomination. It doesn't belong to the clergy. It doesn't belong to influential families. It doesn't belong to any of us. It's this thing that we are part of and we're in, but it's bigger than us and it's, it's owned by God. And we've got to look after it as a as a thing owned by God. Um, I mean, this church, for example, you know, it was 1870 it started, planted by St. Mary's in 1845, and, and it's God's, and, and it's this weird thing that we're in it, but we've got to look after it so that God willing, you know, in 2070 there's still a church here doing what God wants it to do, being what God wants it to be, right? We can't just muck around with it. It's not ours to muck around with. Look, and that can be, you know, that can be hard because sometimes we, we rightly have a very high sense of ownership of the church. We want that. But it's this weird thing that you own it. You really want to love this church, own it, but you always have to remind yourself, you know, we're just here for a season. We're all of us going to leave this church, right? You do, you do understand that. 
it might be because you move to Mossvale, like D, or it might be you leave it in a hearse. You know, like it's an inevitability. The question is, in our time here, are we going to look after it? Are we going to treasure it? Are we going to love it? Are we going to serve it? Is it going to be more and more what God wants it to be? You are very skeptical, you see, about clergy or denominations who think they own the church, because of course they don't. Uh, clergy don't own the church. God does. And that's a wonderful thing. And it changes how we engage with it, right? So the church is not ours to do with, we can't just build a church on the basis of our own preferences, can we? Not that we'd ever do that. I, I'm the, I only sing hymns kind of church. And I'm going to build a church on, you know, the, the, the inviolable truth that Jesus came to live and die so that we could sing 18th century English music. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to build a church on the preference for really long sermons and smoke machines and colored lights and loud music, and that's the church. And so, no, 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 no. I can't build the church on our preferences. And then we'll talk a little more about that in terms of the accountability. We 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 have to work with God, which takes us neatly into our second point: the church belongs to God. But guess what? Um, we're also the church in this church. We're we're radically. Uh, radically interdependent, aren't we? And we're interdependent in a couple of very, very interesting ways. Look at this in verse 5 and 6. We're interdependent at a leadership level through time, and then we're also interdependent within time. So uh, Apollos and Paul were interdependent even though they, they were interdependent through time. So what is what, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, they're only servants, And uh, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Here's their interdependence in verse 6, the text of Bishop Barker's sermon. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but it's God who's been making it grow. So you need someone to plant, you need someone to water, and you need someone to make it grow. And there's this beautiful picture of interdependence through time. And that's how the church works, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, think think back to the midnight, there was John Lasada, and then there was Ed Vaughan, and then there was Barry McGrath, and then there was Mark Leach, and I don't know what the name of our next director will be, but it'll be someone else, and I hope she'll be fantastic. Um, boom tish. Um, you know, uh, but we're all dependent on each other. And the people, and you're dependent on the people who sat in those chairs, because they built this church before you, right? We're all interdependent through time. And that's, that's a very humbling thing and a very encouraging thing. And we're interdependent with God, which is amazing, that we actually get to work with God and under his authority. Now, uh, in this interdependence, we also have to say there's an interdependence within time, in the moment. And there's an interdependence between leadish, leaders and followers. So Paul takes this up. And as we think about our life as a church, or particularly other churches that are childish, um, unlike us, uh, we need to think about the particular ways we discover interdependence between leaders and followers. And uh, this, is, this can be complicated sometimes in churches, right? And it was complicated for the Corinthians. They got themselves all confused around leadership and actually became highly dependent on their leaders rather than interdependent. So I wanted to think a little bit about the role of leadership in the church. And first thing I wanted to say is... 
there's two tendencies we have with leaders, aren't there? One is this. We say um, in the church or in an organization, uh, leaders are everything. You know? Leaders are everything. The, the, a leader-centric church or organization. Uh, and this is very, very popular. People love uh, becoming dependent on charismatic, powerful, visionary leaders. We see this in all kinds of church polity and denominations. You see it in the more independent churches. Uh, you see it in our evangelical circles. So maybe in the Pentecostal circles, the leader is the anointed, spirit-empowered one who has the Lord's anointing for the work. In our evangelical circles, the leader is the only one who's really done enough Greek and Hebrew to really understand the Bible. that No one else can understand it the way he can because he's been to more college and can understand. And no one So, so leader-centric. In the more liturgical or traditional churches, the leader is the only one who's had hands laid on him by, you know, an apostle whose hands, you know, apostolic succession, which means the leader is the only one who can really uh, administer the sacraments and help you connect with God through the sacramental ministry. Uh, What can happen often when leaders, if you're in a church where the leader is everything, it doesn't take long for you to realize that's a recipe for splitting the church because not everyone's going to like the leader and church splits happen largely around leadership styles and personalities. And the other thing that happens is when you get disappointed, when you're in a leader is everything kind of mode in a church or in a business or in a family, uh, you discover very quickly that leaders let you down. And then what do you do? Well, you flip to the other side which is leaders are nothing. And you react and become highly reactive against institutions and authority just out of your own hurt. It's funny, in our history, uh, in the um, 1920s in St. Mary's, I don't know if you know this, St. Mary's, our church down in East Belmaine, um, I was talking with Gilbert, our resident historian, and uh, they, they had a falling out. The congregation had a falling out with the rector. And so the congregation decided they would go and run their own services in the local pub. So they ran their services in the pub while the rector ran his services with a handful of followers in the church. And, it, and Gilbert told me it got even more funny, like while the poor old rector's trying to run his service in the church, the locals would stand outside and throw rocks onto the roof to disrupt the service. Um, it's kind of funny, only it's sort of not. Imagine living through that, that kind of, I mean, the amount of hurt that you must go through to start responding to your leader in that way not just in the 1920s there was a a really it was a great church in melbourne where we lived a baptist church that had grown very quickly under a very dynamic charismatic preacher pastor in the 80s and early 90s really boomed and it was fantastic people loved this guy and then for some reason he decided to move to the country and take like he had a little like a whole, a whole number of the core families all upped and moved with him to set up this compound in the country. And the poor people who were left behind were just devastated. They were like, huh? And so they went, we've been so betrayed by this dysfunctional leadership that they decided, because they were Baptists, they could do this. They went, we're not going to have a pastor. We don't want any leadership. We don't want any authority. We're going to be a self-organizing, organic church, meeting in house churches, doing our own thing, led directly by Jesus and the Spirit. And 20 years later, they were an inward-looking, dispirited, ineffective bunch who came around and said, actually, uh, you know, we need to figure out how we can have effective leadership in the church because just saying we, w- we don't want any leaders wasn't serving them either. So what you want is, uh, is a biblical approach to leadership to understand how does healthy leadership work in the church. 
So here's a little picture I'm going to show you. I use this in everything. It's been enormously helpful to me. Uh, mostly I've got it out of 1 Corinthians 3, helped by a guy called Alistair Mant, who's an Austra- a dual citizen Australian and uh, English organization development consultant, leadership guy. Wrote a book in the 90s called Intelligent Leadership, where he outlines this. Very helpful. Mant talks about, I'm waiting for time, two kinds of leadership. Uh, there's a binary kind of leadership, X and Y. And that's really the temptation we all fall into, and I think the Corinthians had fallen into, which is about the leader is everything. I align to the leader, and X tells Y what to do. Uh, it's win-lose. Uh, win-lose. It's about power, uh, fight or flight. Um, and in this context, y, y just has to fall into line. You do what I say. I'm the Lord's anointed. You... You're not to speak out against the Lord's anointed. I'm the only one who can give you the holy sacraments. And if you don't go get those, you're going to hell. So you'd better do what I say you're going to do. You do what I say because I'm your boss. And if you don't ship up, I'm going to fire you. You know, we see this in our organizations all the time. You just do what I say. It's, it's, a, it's, it's leadership and power based on position and personality and sometimes politics. And, it's, and, and then you, you bounce. If you have this model, you bounce between the leader is everything. And when finally you go, that's crushing and oppressive, you bounce to the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have nothing to do with leaders. There's an alternate model, which comes straight out of the Bible. I think it's very helpful. Um, and it looks like this. So X and Y are still related. X is still the leader, but actually they're related uh, and they work together on this third corner. And that's where, the, that's where the authority comes from. And the interdependence is built upon this third corner, the Z. What do you think the Z is? X is the leader. Y is the followers. Z is. Someone said Jesus. That is the right answer. It is the church. That is the answer for everything. But in this instance, let's drill down. It, it is, let's drill down a little more than just Jesus. It's our goal. It's our purpose. Or let's make it. It's, it's actually Jesus' purpose for the church. That's there. We, we'll combine the two because it's thanks. Two guys working together so well. It's, so the, the, the way healthy leadership and authority works is you say, here's the purpose. Here's, and in our case, here's where God wants us to go. Here's what God wants us to do. Here's God's plan for the church. And the authority of the leader comes, comes not from their own charisma or anointing or sacramental ontological change because they've been ordained, it comes because they, X, can help lead Y to Z. And that's where Z, that's where Y wants to go. Y really deeply wants to become a church where you can make a difference in the city. This is, you know, you want to change the world. You want to submit to Jesus. You want to follow Jesus. And, and X is a servant leader because X is actually submitting themselves to the authority of Z. So all the authority and the power of X really comes from their capacity to take a group of people to a common destination or vision. And X and Y are then involved in this beautiful dance where Y authorizes X, the Corinthian church authorizes Paul to lead them because Paul is going to help them become more like the church they want to be. And Paul is going to exercise authority and leadership because he, he too wants to see this church flourish and become all that it wants to be. That makes sense. They're highly interdependent. And we're all serving the same goal. It's, it's, it's a, I, when, I, when I teach this 
in corporate context, it's all, this is my take on servant leadership. It's a little more nuanced than some of the other stuff doing the rounds. And the servant leadership is, is, is the leader and the followers submit themselves to this other task or purpose. And uh, so we belong to God. And you authorize, if I'm the rector in our system at this point, I'm exercising leadership. You're all sitting here listening to me, or at least pretending to listen to me. And, to the, ex- and the reason you're doing that and giving me your time and attention and your heart is because deep down inside of you, you you're making the judgment that, that I can use my gifts and ability and training and skills and heart to help you and help us become the church God wants us to be and help you become the kind of Christian God wants you to be. And, and you're making that judgment all the time. Is Mark actually going to take us there? Is this going to work? And to the extent that you entrust me with that, you empower me to do that, I then serve you, and together we move in that direction. That's how it works. Now, um, here's one of the challenges of, this, of, of any leadership, and we see, we'll see this in Corinthians, and particularly in 2 Corinthians, is sometimes what can happen, and this can be really problematic in a church, is you can... You can actually get a great deal of, one of the things that makes leadership hard, and we see this in the Corinthian church, a great deal of suspicion, uh, sometimes valid, sometimes not, um, about the motives of X. So Paul, as we'll see right through Corinthians, his authority comes from preaching Christ. He says this all the time. He says, my motives, all I really care about, Paul says, is that the church becomes what God wants it to become and that men and women and boys and girls come to know Jesus as the cross of Jesus is, is preached and proclaimed. And I find that enormously comforting. Um, look, there's a, there's a dynamic around leadership where, where, where followers find it very easy to get suspicious about the motives of leaders. I mean, it happens all the time, always. And if it happened to Paul, it's going to happen to you, it's going to happen to me, it happens in churches. And what, the Bible, what Paul says is, you know what, the only way to address the suspicion is to get to know each other and keep saying to each other all the time, this is God's church and we're working together to preach Christ crucified, to bring the great news of Jesus to the city, to be all that God wants us to be. That's it. There's no other motives at work here. That's what, that's what we're here to do. Everything else is secondary to that. This is not a church... This built on preferences or politics or power. It's just a church built on getting the great news of Jesus out to a world that is dying without him. So uh, we're interdependent. And when you look at the, um, the language that Paul uses, we start to see this interdependence, uh, don't we? Uh, we're a field planted together, but then we're also a building. Um, so... Uh, we're built together and a building. Now I'm going to draw. Here's, here's what a building looks like. Okay, I'm sure you know this, but I figure I might as well draw it because, you know, why not? If you're going to build a building and you're going to build a wall, okay, here's a wall. Look at this. Hey, I did this at 9 o'clock and I'm trying to figure out how to make it go quicker. Okay, here are the bricks in the wall, right? Look at this. Um... What do you notice for this wall to have structural integrity and to stand and to last? How are the bricks related to each other? They're, they're close to each other, right? They're locked in with each other. They, they need each other to stand. 
You take a brick out and you, and you weaken the integrity of the wall. You take 10 bricks out and the wall collapses. And the bricks have to be aligned and find their place. See, it's interesting. God, Paul says that leadership, and actually you can extrapolate this to all of us, God gives each of us a job and each of us a role. Each of us is a brick and we have a place and God puts us in this place and we're built and, and we're all needed. He's going to un change the metaphor as we get on through the book and talk about the body and everyone in the body being needed. But every, the bricks have to be close, dependent on each other. So, hey, listen, as we build, as God builds this church, we need each other. You know, like, we're in this together. And if one of us leaves, our integrity is diminished. And if we decide we don't want to play the part God wants us to be, and you, you know, you just end up with a, sometimes the image I have of the church is actually, it's just a whole lot of rubble. It's just a whole lot of bricks all scattered around, not wanting to be built up together. Because we want to do our own thing. Like the Corinthians, we're independent. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to be free. Say, no, 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 no. There's no, there's no integrity. We can't do what God wants us to do unless we allow him to build us into a building. Uh, here's a diagnostic question to think about. Well, here's a, another way of conceptualizing church, actually, uh, that, fl- that, that uh, takes up this interdependence. Here's the other way we can think of church sometimes, is we can think of church, here's this thing, and the church provides all these goods and services, right? And, uh, and we're all little happy consumers here, and we receive these goods and services, whatever they might be, and we go off and we do our thing. We, we come in. Okay, so we come in, we sit, we consume, and we go. Uh, now, this the service can vary. In our context, it's a 40-minute lecture that you have to sit and consume. And hopefully you'll hear God and it'll be inspiring and motivational, and then you can go and do your thing. Uh, in other contexts, it's amazing music and the presence of God made manifest through the music and God enthroned on the praises of his people, you know, mediated through smoke machines and moving lights, uh, which is awesome. Love that. Uh, in other contexts, it's, it's the sacraments that you come and you consume and you go home. Uh, and this is how the Corinthians, this breeds uh, competition and division as well because it's, it's, you know, I come to the center, I consume... Not that helpful. Here's how I tend to think of the church, rather. It's like, here we go. Okay. And then, you know what? We're all connected in all kinds of ways. And we're actually building this wonderful web of relationships, this wall, this deep sense of interconnectedness, of mutual ministry. We're a family. The diagnostic question is this for you. Uh, answer this for yourself. Do, is church something you go to or is church something that you are? Do you go to church or do you realize that you are the church? And, and typically in our, a place like this church, it, it starts off the former. You, we, all, we typically start our journey with church as something we go to, Right? But actually what God wants to do, we start off here, you know, we start off here and he wants to move us to this vision and draw us in and say, you know, we're built together, we're interdependent. It's not just something we go to, it's what we are. And that's important because finally, uh, if we're going to grow up, according to Paul, hey, we need to realize that we're accountable, aren't we? 
Look at all this stuff he's saying about the, the builder, right? Um, we're accountable to God. He, he's going to judge what we do, what our contribution to the church is. Um, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So listen, our foundation as a church is Jesus. It's not Anglicanism or any other good thing. Those are all good, but the foundation has to be Christ. Not marketing, not music, not personality, not power, not persuasion, not rhetoric, not factions. It's Jesus is our foundation, actually, and he's our purpose. He's everything. Uh, And we've got to build on that foundation, and we've got to build in a way that will really last. It seems, according to Paul, it's possible for us to put a lot of effort into the church out of wrong motives, in the wrong direction, and in a way that ultimately is a waste of time. If we build a church around our preferences, if, if we build a church just to keep ourselves happy, if we build a church around anything other than Jesus and his mission, uh, it seems like that's not going to last, right? So there's six different kinds of, of uh, in this metaphor, there's, there's six different things that you can use to build. Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Uh, what's the difference between the first three and the last three? One's precious, non-precious. Yeah. Why is the first lot precious? One's combustible. One, the, the second set are combustible. The first set aren't combustible. Guess what? Fires in cities in the ancient world were, were, were massively feared. Uh, the population density in cities like Rome and Corinth exceeded the population density of Manhattan or Hong Kong. Uh, people crammed together, two, three-story buildings, all made out of wood, cooking in there, no running water. I mean, fire was an ever-present, terrifying reality. So if you could build a building that didn't go up in flames, that was incredibly valuable. Everyone was used to buildings just going in flames. And Paul says, there is a way we can build a church that won't last. There's going to come a judgment. God says, each and every one of us are going to have to, and I don't know where you're at with this, but you know, Here's the deal. God says each and every one of us is going to have to front up to Jesus on the last day, and he's going to look at us and say, what did you do with your life, right? What did you do with the life I gave you? You know, I died for you. I died for the church. Now, how have you invested your life? And and for some of us, he's going to say, um, hey, you know what? You're in. You're saved. I love you for sure. You're great. But because of your childishness, because of your selfishness, because of your, your misunderstanding, because of... I don't know, your hard-heartedness or your laziness, nothing you've really done is going to last. You haven't really built anything that's going to last. You haven't built a church that's going to last. Imagine hearing that. And that would be terrible, wouldn't it? I don't know. I just think that would be awful. The alternative is, like if we build on Jesus and we submit ourselves to Christ and we build this kind of church that he wants and we invest in each other's lives and we, and we, we build a united church full of love and, and massively focused on, on those outside of us the way Jesus is, then, then Paul says we're going to be building something that's actually going to last. And, and what we do in this organization, in this community, and what we do with our lives will last. Don't you want that? Don't you, I mean, don't, don't you want to do something that will really make a difference forever in bringing people to know Jesus and investing in their lives and discipling them and serving them? And, you know, and it seems possible you can build a great big inspiring gathering of people, but, if, but, but actually it's not really built on Jesus. It's not shaping people to be like Jesus. It doesn't have the heart of Jesus, and it's just going to go with the judgment. That would be awful, right? 
here's why this accountability is so important. Um, because, and uh, if, you, if you think that first bit was hard, it, it, accountability is so important, it's because we're God's temple. This is the final bit of the metaphor, right? That Paul says, listen, uh, you are God's temple. You together are that temple. Now, what's the temple? Well, in the, in the, before Jesus came, the temple was the place where God met humankind. If you wanted to know God in the ancient world, you had to come to the temple. If you wanted to connect with God, the place to do that was in the temple. And the Old Testament had this vision that all the nations of the world would flood to Jerusalem to find God. Now, the Bible says, listen, the temple is no longer that building localized in one place. It says, we are the temple. Okay. We all go, wow, that's awesome. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Woohoo. Guess what that means? That means our, the, the heart of us being the temple, the divine vision and dream and purpose of making you and me the temple is that so people don't have to go to Jerusalem to find God anymore. They've just got to come to 668 Darling Street. Or into our homes, into your space and work. We are the temple of God. If people are going to find God today, they're going to find it in the Christian community, in the church. That's where God is. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. So the the accountability is huge. When we fail to be what God wants us to be, when we destroy the temple, it's not just that we're harming each other, which is bad enough. But when we pull apart the church and fail to be what God wants us to be, we actually make it impossible for people to come to know God. I think that's why we're accountable. That's why God takes this really seriously. So for us here at Darling Street to build a healthy church, to live out, to to follow God's lead, as we've been doing since 1870 and 1845 down in St. Mary's and God willing for the next hundred years, to build a church that is the temple of God is of utmost importance because this is the way and this is the place where people can come know Jesus. And if we're not doing that, we're not being the temple. (laughs) If we're inward looking and we're divided and we're not seeing people coming to know Jesus here and finding God, we're not the temple, we're just a club, man. And it's not going to (laughs) last. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, it's kind of sobering, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? It's a wonderful, inspiring, motivational speech to make us all feel good. But I think it's exciting. It's, it's actually, I think, impossible to overstate the importance of the church to God. Like, this is his bride. This is, his, this is God's plan. The local church is God's plan to save the world. Like we're the temple, man. The nations are meant to come here and find God in our midst. Now, I think the purpose of this is actually to move us to deep repentance and crying out to God, isn't it? And that's what Paul wanted to do with the Corinthians. To actually say, come, can you see this vision? I mean, I need to repent. You need to repent. We need the Holy Spirit to come and give us this unity and this vision and this power and this presence here so that we can be everything that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord God, um, forgive us for our childishness uh, in so many ways.
I stick my hand up and own that. Lord, you want something so much better for us. You want us to work with each other, to be your building, to be your field, to be your temple, where your spirit dwells, where people in this wonderful city of Sydney can come and find you, God, in our midst. And Lord, the wonderful thing about this is where your temple when we go to work, where your temple when we go into the to our homes, in our neighborhoods, where your temple in our small groups, in our alpha group, in our in our Sunday gatherings, we take your presence with us, Lord. So 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 pour your spirit out on us. Help us to work together with you and with each other that that will be everything you want us to be, Lord. And may we build this church so that, Lord, in you know, 2070, there's still a church worshiping you. Your temple is still bringing people to know Jesus uh, in this city. We ask this in your great name, Lord. Amen. We're going to respond to God by.